The story so far in Joshua is that the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River. They are now in the promised land. And now comes the work of conquering the land. And in Joshua chapter 5, we see Israel preparing for battle. What does that involve? Well, we might expect it to involve some weapons training, just to make sure the troops are all in peak condition. Certainly, we would expect to see Joshua inspecting the troops and maybe studying some maps, doing some strategizing. That's how an army prepares for battle, right? But it's not how this army prepares. God's conquering army prepares by being operated on and eating a ceremonial meal. Let's read about that in Joshua chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. And if you're looking that up, it's page 219, or in the large print Bibles, page 335. Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. The very first verse of chapter 5, just before the point where we started reading, told us the Canaanites are afraid. The people living in Canaan have no courage to face the Israelites. And so surely the thing for Israel to do would be to rush in and capitalize on that. That would seem like the way forward. But instead, they go through this operation, then they lie around the camp until they've healed up again. It doesn't seem to us like this should be a priority. Now granted, there is never a good time to be circumcised. But did they really need to do it now? 
Shouldn't they be seizing the day and attacking? Well, what this shows us is that obedience to God is more important than charging ahead. And trusting God's promises is more important than any skills or strength we might have. God commands the army to be circumcised because he wants an army that's fully committed to him. Their willingness to be circumcised at this point shows their trust in God's promises. And the background to this comes in the book of Genesis. Hundreds of years before this, God made promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to give his descendants this land, the land of Canaan. That was a covenant God made with Abraham. And the way Abraham and his descendants were to show their commitment to the God of the covenant was by being circumcised. That was the sign God chose. Circumcision wasn't invented especially for the covenant with Abraham. Other cultures we know already practice circumcision. But God chose it as the sign of his special relationship with his people. And if we ask why God chose this as a sign, remember the promise was a promise of descendants. I will make you into a great nation. So it makes sense for God to choose a sign connected to the male organ of reproduction. But what happened was this God-ordained sign of commitment has fallen out of use in Israel. After Israel left Egypt, they wandered around the desert for 40 years, during which time the Exodus generation died out. That was their punishment for not trusting God's promises. How did they show that lack of trust? Well, they did go right up to the edge of Canaan. They peeked into the land God had promised them. And then they said, we can't beat the people who live in there. They're too strong for us. The Lord brought us here just to let us die by the sword. That's recorded in the book of Numbers. And out of that generation, only Joshua and Caleb disagreed with the consensus. They were the minority of two that disagreed with the majority. They did trust God, and that's why they're still around. We'll meet Caleb later on in the book. But the point is, this new generation haven't been circumcised yet. They haven't made that declaration of their trust in God and commitment to God. And so before any battles are fought, the Israelites stop and they renew this sign. And God says in verse 9, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I take that to mean I have removed from you the death sentence that fell on your ancestors due to their lack of faith and commitment. Well, after that comes the second part of Israel's battle preparation. They celebrate the Passover, showing their trust in God's provision. In verse 10, 
On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. The original Passover took place just before Israel left Egypt. God promised to bring judgment onto the Egyptians for their defiance. Every firstborn son in Egypt would die. But the Israelites, God said, would be protected if they killed a lamb and put its blood on their doorframes. The point was, they would escape God's judgment because another had died in their place. The lamb was their substitute. And that saving event was then to be commemorated by an annual Passover meal, remembering God's provision. And so by celebrating the Passover here, the Israelites are reaffirming their trust in God's provision. But look what happens. The day after they celebrate the Passover, God stops giving them the manna. All through the wilderness years, he'd provided this strange food for them. We know it was strange because the word manna means, what is it? They didn't really know what it was, but it kept them going. And now, just when Israel renews its trust in God's provision, the manna stops. No more bread from heaven. But we're immediately told why it stops. It's because they don't need it anymore. Now they have the produce of Canaan. And that is equally God's provision. It doesn't appear miraculously on the ground like the manna did. But things that grow in the ground come from God too. God's ordinary, unspectacular provision is still his provision. And so your pay or your pension are just as much God's gracious provision as an anonymous envelope with cash in it. By going through circumcision and by celebrating the Passover, Israel has shown they are trusting in God. And that means they're ready for battle. Never mind how well they can shoot a bow or swing a sword. The crucial preparation is done. The other stuff doesn't matter that much. And this is something for you and me to grasp. Because God is still looking for people committed to him and trusting in him. We've seen lately in Revelation the battles you and I are called to fight are different from the battles Israel is about to face here. But it's the same God who calls us to battle. And his priorities haven't changed. We're to battle for purity in an impure world. We're to battle for truth in the midst of lies. Love in the midst of selfishness. 
generosity in the midst of greed. And we prepare for those battles not by focusing on our own abilities. We prepare by committing ourselves to God. Trusting his promises to preserve us and sustain us. Trusting him to provide the strength and wisdom we need. The battles still have to be fought. But who we're trusting in is what makes all the difference. Here in Canaan, the Israelites are ready for battle. But what happens next answers the question, whose battle is this? Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. As Joshua is scouting around Jericho, he sees a man with a drawn sword. A drawn sword is a sign of hostility. Whoever this guy is, he's ready for a fight. Joshua decides to find out whose side he's on. Are you for us or for our enemies? That seems like a reasonable question. But notice the man's answer. Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, the question is not whose side I'm on, but whose side are you on, Joshua? Are you with the Lord's armies or against them? Of course, we know Joshua's on the Lord's side. But the point has still been made. Joshua has just been reminded whose battle this really is. Yes, Joshua commands a large human army. But the truly significant army here is the Lord's angelic army. Joshua can be confident going into battle not because he has a great army but because he's on the same side as the Lord's army. When we looked at chapter 1, we saw that God gave Joshua the same words of encouragement he'd given to Joshua's predecessor, Moses. God promised, I will be with you. And now God's messenger is reminding Joshua where the real power lies, just as he had reminded Moses. Joshua is told to take off his sandals, for the place where he's standing is holy. God said exactly the same to Moses, before Moses went to stand before Pharaoh. And the point here is not that Joshua and Moses luckily happened to stumble on a piece of holy ground. No, the point is the one who is with them is holy and powerful. 
as long as they're with him, all the ground they walk on is holy. It's all God's. So the best thing they can do is to stay with him. In this battle ahead, the crucial factor is not the two human armies. The winners will be the ones who are on the Lord's side. The ones who share the Lord's priorities. Who love what he loves and hate what he hates. The ones who desire his glory above all else. As we saw this morning, God is sovereign. It's a waste of time trying to conscript him onto our side. Our job is to make sure we are on his side. And having made that point to Joshua, this angelic messenger now passes on the Lord's instructions as Joshua had asked him to. And as background to these instructions, chapter 6 verse 1 tells us, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. That's significant. It shows the people of Jericho are not going to ask for mercy from the God of Israel. They could do that. Rahab did. She asked for mercy and she received it. But everyone else in Jericho has chosen to resist. We'll come back to that point later. But for the moment, the main issue is not what the closed gates tell us about the people inside the city. The main issue is how Israel is going to deal with these closed gates. We've probably seen enough films to know how we deal with the gates and the walls of Jericho. A few of those big battering rams, some of those catapults that fling massive rocks or balls of fire, followed up by lots of ladders with soldiers crazy enough to climb them. That's how you tackle a fortified city in the movies. And maybe Joshua had similar ideas. But no one would come up with the plan God has. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Sometimes we come across things in the Old Testament and we discover they were common practices at the time. We saw an example of that earlier when we noticed that circumcision was a common practice at the time. God just chose it to be the sign of his covenant with Israel. 
And so as we read this, we might wonder if marching round city walls was a thing they did in the ancient world. You might wonder that, but no. Historians tell us this is unique. And it's actually more like a ceremony with the priests and the ark and the trumpets. One commentator describes it as a sacred procession. And as God gives these odd instructions, he speaks as if the victory has already been won. In verse 2, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Well, from our perspective, that's not what it looks like. The walls are still standing at this point. But God says Jericho is already defeated. The walls are just a minor footnote still to be sorted out. We're learning timeless truths here about how God's people win battles. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't swords that won battles. It was God. As Israel committed to worship and obey God, he delivered the enemy into their hands. And today, the church in England does not have the numbers or the influence or the financial clout to do much at all. But that's not how we conquer. Again, we've seen this in the book of Revelation. We conquer by living to worship and obey God. And as we do that, his kingdom will advance. Resistant hearts will be conquered. The temptation is always for the church to think, but obeying God isn't going to work. I think that's always been the temptation. Joshua was a military man. As he heard God's instructions, that thought must have gone through his head. You and I can read on quickly tonight and get to the end of the story. But Joshua lived through this in real time. He had to trust this marching band approach was going to work. He must have felt the temptation to do something different. Maybe drop a few of the trumpets and wheel up some battering rams. Joshua had read the textbooks on warfare. He knew that God's instructions here defy human wisdom on how to win battles. And so doing what God asks him to do is a step of faith. We saw that last week too. With God's command to step into the Jordan River while that river was in flood. That took faith. And now we know the need for faith never stops. We never reach a point in our lives where we don't need faith anymore. Obeying God requires faith day after day. To step into the river, to march around the walls, in Israel's case. And in our case, it takes faith day after day to seek first 
God's kingdom and God's righteousness rather than our own kingdom. It takes faith to live by the values of the new heaven and earth instead of the values of this present age. The world around us thinks that's just as barmy as walking around a walled city blowing trumpets. It always takes faith to trust and obey God's word. And it is almost always wildly countercultural. Now, this doesn't mean human wisdom has no place. As this conquest goes on, Joshua will make use of those textbooks on warfare. We will see some clever tactics in the later battles. But here at the outset, God wants Israel to see that ultimately it all depends on him. Obeying him is the crucial thing. Clever tactics are secondary. And it's the same for the church today. It is important that we understand the culture around us. We can benefit from human wisdom on how to reach people and on the skills of leadership. It's helpful to learn those kind of battle tactics. So long as we remember always, those things are secondary. The crucial factor is God himself. And the first thing you and I are called to is not to be clever. It's to listen to God and then obey him. That's how the church moves forward. When the church forgets that, the church gets defeated every time. No matter how well educated it is about the culture or about leadership, or about how to use social media. Whose battle is this? It's the Lord's. And the rest of the story is just filling in the details. The rest of chapter 6 shows us how the battle is won through salvation and destruction. Verses 6 to 14 tell us about the first six days of this battle, if you could call it a battle. The procession goes round the city once every day and then goes back to the camp. And we'll pick up down at verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched round the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the man Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. A key word in all of this is the word devoted. It occurs three times. The first is in verse 17, when Joshua says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Saying something was devoted to the Lord meant it was given over to him. And in the Old Testament, there were two ways that could happen. The devoted thing could enter God's service or it could be destroyed. We see both those forms of devotion here at Jericho. Verse 19 tells us the silver, gold, bronze, and iron from Jericho is going to enter the Lord's service. It will be put in his treasury. And Rahab and her family also enter the Lord's service. They turn their backs on their old allegiance to God's enemies and commit themselves to God. The Israelites are a people set apart for God. We saw that earlier with the circumcision. And now... Rahab and her family join that people set apart for God. Verse 25 tells us she's given a permanent place among God's people. She has been devoted to God through salvation. But the rest of Jericho is devoted to him through destruction. And as we see that, it's important to remember something we noticed earlier. The people of Jericho could have asked God for mercy. 
like Rahab did. Rahab was not saved because she was better than the rest of them. She was a prostitute. Rahab was saved because she acknowledged that the Lord is God and she sought his mercy. That was back in chapter 2. Her salvation here is the result of that repentance and faith. And the point is, everyone in Jericho had the same opportunity as Rahab. We know from chapter 2, the whole city was aware of Israel's God. And they were aware of his power. But whereas Rahab chose to seek mercy from him and join his people, the rest of the city chose to resist. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 6. They barred the gates. They decided to take their chances in a fight against God and his people. And so we mustn't read about Jericho's destruction here and think God is wiping out a city full of innocent people who would repent if only they had the chance. They have had the chance. This destruction comes on people who have chosen to take their stand against God. The kind of Jericho shows that God will win the battle against his enemies. It will be won either through their salvation or their destruction. And if we think this might just be an Old Testament thing, the fact is we find the same picture in the New Testament. The only difference is the New Testament ramps up the intensity about a hundred times. In the Old Testament, we see God's judgment fall on a few thousand rebels. A few cities here and there. The New Testament promises a day when his judgment will fall on this rebellious world. So don't ever think the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. The Bible gives us a consistent picture of God. He is the God who loves to show mercy to repentant rebels. He loves to win the battle against his enemies by saving his enemies. But those who persist in defying him will find he wins the battle by destroying his enemies. And just as the New Testament expands the scale of destruction to include the whole rebellious world, so it expands the duration of destruction. It will be eternal destruction in hell. Commentators have pointed out that the text here devotes almost as many words to the salvation of Rahab and her family as it does to the destruction of the city. That tells us how much God celebrates the salvation of sinners. A handful saved 
gets as much attention as a whole city destroyed. And today we are dealing with the same God. He will win the battle. And he delights to win it through salvation. If we want proof of that, we can look to the cross. There God the Son took the destruction we deserved so we could be saved. That shows how much God loves to save. We will only face destruction ourselves if we continue to resist him. Jericho is a monument to the futility of resisting God. That's the purpose of Joshua's curse at the end of chapter 6. The city is to stay in rubble as a warning to others. This is how resistance to God ends up. And the ruins of Jericho are also a reminder to God's people. The battle is the Lord's. We move forward and we conquer by falling in line behind the Lord. We win ground for God's kingdom by committing ourselves to him, being faithful to worship and obey him. When we look at the society we live in, it's so easy for us to panic and think we need new tactics, we need new weapons. But that's always been the temptation. It was the temptation for Israel facing Jericho with a few trumpets and a wooden box. What good was that going to do? Walking around the walls didn't seem like much of a plan. But they obeyed and God gave them the city. So let's trust him. And let's do what he asks of us every day. He's the same God, and it's his battle today too. And let's respond to his word now, as we sing, Stand up, stand up for Jesus.